You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. Amen. God bless you. So good to see each and every one of you. Welcome back to another week here at Southridge Church. If this is your first time, let me be the first to welcome you and say thank you so much for making time to be a part of our services. And also, I want to give a special shout out to everyone who prayed and participated in last Sunday's epic Easter. What God did was nothing short of a miracle. It's exciting to be able to look back on the other side to see how God showed up and how God showed off last week. There's two banners on my left and on my right, and uh, our theme for this Easter was death is canceled. And uh, Pastor Missal gave me a brilliant idea a couple of weeks ago when we were planning on what are we going to do so that people, when they make a decision to receive Christ, that it kind of stays in their mind. What's some action, you know? We want to give them a Bible, of course. We want to give them next steps. But what's something that can stay in their mind? And he, he's from the banking world, and he was like, hey, you know, uh, we stamp canceled on uh, people's credit cards. We stamp canceled on all kinds of stuff. What if we had a banner and people, after they receive Christ, that they stamp canceled. And so to my left and to my right are those banners where uh, two services, the first service we had 399 people, the second service we had 639 people who attended, many of you were there, and these are the ones who gave their life to Christ, and let's just give God a hand clap of worship right now, because that is incredible. Now, I know what you may be thinking, Pastor, I see that they stamped it. Where are they? And that's a good question. I don't know where these people are, but let me give you an answer to anybody who might say, well, we do these big evangelistic services and I don't see the ROI. Let me just tell you something real quick because I think Satan always loves to do anything he can to plant a seed of doubt, like your hard work doesn't really matter and and that you gave up Saturday to set up doesn't matter. I don't know and you don't know where these people are but you will know and I will know where they will be one day. And that's what's important. We now know where they will be. You say, where will they be? Their names are now written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. They are sealed with that spirit of promise. One day we will meet them and one day they're gonna walk up to you and say, thank you so much for being brave enough to set up on an Easter Sunday and to reach out to the city of San Jose so they can come to an Easter service and they can hear the message of Jesus Christ and receive that forgiveness of sin and they stamp canceled on the, the, the banner there and that will stay in their mind. So thank you so much for being a part of that and let this serve as just an encouragement because God is building his church and we are making a difference. And I know you're like me, we kind of want to see those instant results, but God is still building something great here. God is still doing something. And so when we see people make a decision, let's not let Satan put into our minds and hearts like, well, if they really were saved, then they would do this. You know what? When I first got saved, it wasn't like everything just changed right overnight. 
That, that, that work of grace and sanctification, they're in a process now. And so as our church, we want to welcome and encourage, and we're excited what God is going to do in the days ahead. Well, I want to kick off a new series, and I would like to turn to the book of Daniel. Whenever you travel, whenever I travel, uh, maybe especially whenever you travel out of state, you might get asked the question that I get asked. People will ask, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from San Jose. And a lot of people don't know where San Jose is. So you then have to kind of explain that it's about 30 to 45 minutes south of San Francisco. And then maybe you get the same reaction that I get. Whoa, that's where all the earthquakes. I don't know how you could live there. And especially when you're talking to somebody in Florida where they got all the tornadoes and hurricanes, they have a whole season. Like, we don't have earthquake season. You know, they have literal seasons of hurricanes and tornadoes, all right? We don't have seasons, but it's amazing that everybody will talk about the Bay Area and be like, oh, man, you guys just have the worst earthquakes. You know what? Honestly, we had two bad earthquakes, like two, 1906 and 1989. Like, but yet we are forever labeled as like, that's a crazy place to live. But one thing about an earthquake, you and I, we always feel the shaking, don't we? Because there's two tectonic plates that are constantly moving. And scientists say that L.A. is moving at about 30 to 50 centimeters a year. You say, how much is that? It's about an inch and a half every year. L.A. is moving further north. You say, I don't like driving to L.A. and I don't want to get on a plane to go there. Good. 20 million years. L.A. will be next to San Francisco. You won't have to worry about it, okay? So if you live that long, you don't have to worry about it because the tectonic plates are constantly moving. And you and I sometimes feel that movement. I think right now there's a tectonic shift happening in our culture, in our world. And as you get around people, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, they feel it too. Like everybody just kind of knows something's happening. We don't necessarily know what to do with it. It's like, hey, we, we try to march and protest. We try to black out a tile. Hey, we tried to get involved. We try to do all these things. And why does it seem like things aren't better, but they're just worse? Why do people seem like they're more on edge? Why, do, why does it just kind of seem like there's something under the surface, kind of like that earthquake? There's just something rumbling, and we can't quite put our finger on it. Well, as I began to pray and as I began to ask God for wisdom on what to teach on, I came to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel starts out practically. It's a very practical book, and it moves into the prophetic. And so I don't necessarily have like a, a timeline for how long we'll spend in the book of Daniel. We're just going to take our time, and we're just going to kind of march through this book because I feel that you and I can glean truths from how Daniel handled the tectonic shifting, the major shifts in his life, and they can help us. Because what's happening today is we're seeing these waves of culture wash over the church. And it's pushing the church in a direction. There's a wave that is pushing Christians in a direction. And as we step back, some of us are just caught up in the wave. It's kind of like if you go to Great Wolf Lodge, they've got the wave pool. You just get caught up and you just relax. Or they got the lazy river. And you're like, yeah, this is fun. Just kind of enjoying it. But I'm a little bit nervous by people when you ask them, hey, have you considered where is that wave taking you? And they're like, no, I'm just riding the wave, man. I'm just, I'm just on this wave. I'm just riding it. There is a very dangerous wave. It's called the riptide. Any of you ever heard about a riptide? 
You say, what is a riptide? Well, March 31st, a man by the name of Peter was on a family vacation with his three children, and they had just gotten to the panhandle of Florida. And immediately his kids got out and ran towards the water. They didn't notice that there was two red flags, which in Florida, if there's two red flags, it's a warning that says strong riptides. You see, what a riptide is, is when waves are coming in, the water's got to go out some way. So it'll find these deeper channels that are right there by the surface. And what'll happen, an unsuspecting swimmer will run into the water just thinking they're about to have a great time body surfing, and they'll get swept up into this riptide. And what happens is the riptide pulls you under, and it pulls you out to sea. And in a panic, oftentimes people will fight against the current to try to swim back, exhausting all their energy. Sometimes the riptide will start barreling you under the water, and you won't be able to hold your breath. Each year, tragically, about 100 or more people die from riptides. And it's that wave, it's that current, it's that unsuspecting wave. And right now, there's a different kind of wave that I think is sweeping our culture. And I think you and I feel it. I think we see it. Or if we don't see it, I'm praying that as we study God's word, the Holy Ghost, along with the word of God, will open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our ears to be able to hear the truth, to be able to see the truth, and then to make wiser decisions. Because what is happening is we are seeing people swept up in a wave, and they think this is fun until they don't realize that it's too late. Because what happens as you're under the water and you're turning and you're turning, you start to get disoriented. And surfers will talk about this. They, they learn to hold their breath for long lengths of time because that wave can keep them underwater and then the, the waves are disoriented them. So they think they're swimming up to get a fresh breath of air, not realizing they're actually swimming deeper to their demise. And some of us think, well, this is the right way because culture is saying that this is the way the church needs to be and this is the way we need to follow. And you are seeing people jump on board with these waves when we forget that God called us to be a different kind of wave. That we are to be salt, we are to be light. That we are to be different from culture. And so I want us to look at the book of Daniel because Daniel fits so perfectly because he was a Hebrew and he's going to, remain true to his convictions and how he was raised even while he lives his entire life in a wicked, godless kingdom in the city of Babylon. So let's begin and let's pick it up in Daniel chapter number one, verse number one. The Bible says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It's interesting to see that it wasn't that the king Nebuchadnezzar had a stronger army. It wasn't that he had better siege engines. It wasn't that he was uh, better militarily. It was the fact that in verse 2, the Bible says, the Lord gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. What has to happen where God now turns you over to your enemy? You see, for too long, the nation of Israel had been forsaking God, and they chose to follow particularly two other gods, the gods of Ashtoreth and then the god of Baal. Baal was power. Baal represented wealth and money. The god Ashtoreth, that was one that was uh, 
immorality. It was all kinds of illicit behaviors. Basically, it's money and morals. But our culture, we wouldn't struggle with those things today now, would we? It's amazing how those two gods are still alive and well. And it's amazing how many times we see it crept into the church. This week, another mega church, they had to close down a campus because their lead pastors were embezzling all the money. It's a global ministry, and this week they had to, the founders of this ministry had to make an embarrassing announcement that they had put people in charge who had given in to the fact that they loved money more than they loved teaching people and helping people and shepherding people. So those gods of Astroth and Baal are very much alive. And God told the nation of Jerusalem, of Israel, repent and I'll protect you. But they wouldn't. And so in verse 2, God sent Nebuchadnezzar and he judged them. But in verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them daily provisions of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among these of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine with which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I want to make a statement that we need to be careful that we are not here to glide on the tide of culture. And I think it's so easy to get swept up with the wave of culture. And many times it's fun to just kind of like go with the flow. This week, my family, we try to make it a tradition during the kids' spring break. We try to take them to the beach somewhere. It just so happened we thought we were going to try Morro Bay. That did not work out well at all. It's way too cold. We left the hotel, checked out early, and then we went to Pismo, where it was much warmer, and met up with friends and had a way better time. But it's interesting as you watch people jump on the waves with their boogie boards or their surfboards. They're at the mercy of the wave. And so many of us, that's how we're living life. We're just at the mercy of wherever this wave wants to take us. But God does not want you and I to glide with the tide of culture. Because there's three waves that are going to hit these Hebrews. The first wave was the wave of isolation. You saw it in verse number two. King Nebuchadnezzar said, let's take some articles from the temple and let's bring them into our temple. What was he trying to say? Our God is stronger than your God. Look, we took your stuff. Your God did not protect you. He didn't understand that God had given them up, that God was ruling and reigning. God was in charge. You see, God is in charge of your life and in my life. Everything that is happening in our society, God is there. 
He hasn't abandoned or taken off his hand. He's in the middle of it. God is sovereign. So we see there's a wave of isolation. Secondly, I want you to see that there's a wave of indoctrination. The Bible says that for three years, they were to study the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They were to be brainwashed for three years. I don't know about you, but as you look at culture, are you noticing a correlation? Culture has isolated people. You can't gather. The Supreme Court just ruled against Gavin Newsom that yes, you can't say Bible studies in homes are illegal. You can't do that. Some of you were like, I was already doing it. I didn't know that was illegal. Yeah, you were breaking the law by having a Bible study in your house. Rebels. And so here we have a, a governor that was trying to isolate people. And so we see that. Then you see indoctrination, what has happened in our education system. You see total indoctrination. You're not, you're not being taught things that are actually true. It's revisionist. And so there's an indoctrination happening in culture, rewriting things, changing things. I spoke with one person recently, and I said, no, you don't have the story correct. I said, these are the facts. They said, well, no, 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 this is just how it made me feel. I said, no, no, facts and feelings are two totally different things. But they wouldn't agree that their feelings weren't facts. And that's the nature that we live in. Most people are saying, well, it felt real, so therefore it is real. We don't go by facts. We go by feelings, apparently, today. So there was a whole indoctrination, but then we also see there was a wave of intimidation. Do we see that nowadays? We see intimidation. We see indoctrination. And we see isolation. So how do we combat these waves? I see, first of all, there was the land. They took them out of the land. And I'm just going to kind of go through this. It may not be the normal message. We're going to just kind of set it up for a little bit, and then we'll dive into some time of just uh, laying out some application. But first of all, I see that they were taken out of the land. Verse 3, the Bible says, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuch, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And he wanted to bring them out. So they got the best, and they bring them out of the land. And here's what's so amazing. That as they're brought out of the land, why would he take them out of the land? It's brilliant on his part. Because he was trying to isolate them. That's where he wanted to sever their loyalty. You see that loyalty was a big deal, especially to Jerusalem. And you can do a great study on your own if you'd like to between the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. Really, what this all is about is a tale of two cities. You see, Babylon didn't just represent might and power. Babylon represented something that man has been trying to do for all of history. You go back to Genesis. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a tower. Let us have one language. Man has constantly been trying to be great, haven't we? Babylon is trying to say, hey, you're going to learn our language. You're going to adopt our culture. We're going to change all that. We all need to just uh, uh, get on board. And so that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. He wanted to get the best and the brightest and indoctrinate them. Give, give them a new way of doing things, a new way of acting, a new way of talking, a new way of thinking. So they come to the point where they actually think they are Chaldeans, not Hebrews. That was his plan. So you see, he wanted to sever their loyalty. And he did this by saying, I'm going to bring them to Babylon. But I want you to understand, and I love this, it's not about the city where you live, but it's the city you live for. 
You see, because for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it didn't matter that they were in Babylon. They still chose, verse number eight, that they were going to do what is right. You may find yourself at a job where not everybody is a born-again Christian that supports you going to church and supports you being a part of a life group and supports you evangelizing and supports you uh, reading the Bible and praying. You may not have a coworker or a boss like that, but you can still be a godly influence there. You still can be the wave that counteracts their wave. You may not necessarily even have godly family around you. Sometimes I think we take it for granted if we have Christian parents or Christian siblings. I know there are people in this auditorium right now that they wish they had Christian parents. They wish they had Christian siblings. They wish they had that support, but there are many people they do not have that support. And so even though they were separated from the land, understand, it was a new land, but they didn't have a new Lord. They still remembered that we serve Jehovah God, and they still were going to stay faithful to him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought, if I can isolate you, I can influence you. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do. He tries to isolate you so he can influence you. If we were to study scripture, you could study the account of Lot as he was rescued from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah as God sent uh, uh, angels that were going to judge the city. And Lot didn't want to go. And so the angels grabbed him and his wife and his two daughters and dragged him out of the city. So we see that Lot is delivered. But what does Lot do once he's delivered? He hides in a cave. And what happens in that cave? Sin breaks out. Instead of saying, God's delivered me, let me go find some healthy Christian community, he wanted to stay isolated. And when you're isolated, you're easily influenced for the wrong thing. And that's one thing that I've noticed is so many people, once you get alone, even if you get alone with your own thinking, you ever just gotten by yourself and uh, nobody's said anything or done anything, but you just see something pop up on your social media feed and all of a sudden you just don't like that person. They didn't do anything to you. They didn't say anything about you, but you're scrolling through your feed and you're like, they're so smug. They just think they're, wow, look at them, working out, always working out. Must be nice to work out. Oh, look at them, always eating out. Must be nice to always be able to eat out. Oh, look at them, they get a new car. Always getting a new car. What's up with they would get a new car? If they were really godly, they would drive a hoopty like me. You know, they're just not that spiritual. Oh, always traveling. Can't believe they travel. Oh, look at that, happy little marriage. They're so proud of their happy little marriage. Why can't they be like me, just suffering for Jesus in my marriage? You know, why, why are you getting upset? Why are you letting anxiety well up inside of you and you're just scrolling through somebody's social media? Because we're easily influenced because our mind will tell us crazy thoughts. Because when we're alone and isolated, we're easily influenced. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted to get these people away. He wants to influence Jerusalem. What better way than to take their best and their brightest, to take them out of the land, and then he'll influence them. So then if he ever were to send them back as a puppet king or a, a somebody he wanted to place as a governor, he knew he controlled them. But yet for Daniel, he purposed in his heart that that wouldn't be the case. So we see, first of all, verse 3 and 4, they were taken out of the land, and that was to sever their loyalty. But notice, if you would, verse 6 and 7. The Bible says, Now from among these of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He changed Daniel's name, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael. He changed all their names. And when I got to this part, I was thinking, okay, you would think they would be upset. I mean, you just got ripped from your homeland. I mean, that would upset you. 
I love California. I would hate it if somebody said, you got to leave California. I'd be, I'd be a little bit miffed. I've traveled a little bit in the United States. And the South, there's too many mosquitoes. There's too much humidity. And then they got these uh, little thing called chiggers that just itch like crazy. So I'm not a big fan of the South. Some of you are like, I'm going to the South. Good for you. Enjoy it. I'll see you in two years. You know, and it's like as soon as people get there, they're like, I want to go back to California. I've lived a little bit in the Midwest. It gets too cold. It's just the snow. It's not for me. Haven't done the East Coast. Uh, don't plan on it. But there's something about California. Can you imagine? Jerusalem meant everything to these Hebrews. Being ripped from their homeland. You would think they'd be upset about it. I mean, they weren't happy about it. But then it comes to their names. Once again, no pushback. You see, they thought by changing their name, they would strip away their identity. You see, changing the name was about identity. And I think that's the next thing that is happening in our culture right now. It's interesting because when you study the names, you know, Daniel means God is my judge. So once you change the name, he's given a different name. They're wanting to change it because if you can name it, you can contain it. What this was, it was about control. They wanted to control. They wanted to strip away their identity. But it was not enough just to change their name. It was they had to change the meaning of their name. There's something very scary that I'm noticing in culture today. It's not that words are changing. It's that the meaning behind words are changing. And it's oh so subtle of a deception. I read a book this week because, uh, let's be honest, if you are a white, heterosexual male, you're not a nice person in our country right now. Let's just call it out. Let's point out the elephant in the room. And so I was like, I'm going to read some books. Because our culture, by and large, labels a white, heterosexual male a racist. Okay? I know this is a tough subject, but just humor me for a minute. So I wanted to find out, how am I a racist? Like, I mean, just by default, I am. That's what culture would say, that whether I acknowledge it or not. So I just wanted to do some research on it. Because after all, my wife is Filipino. So I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm a racist. I mean, I, I, my wife's Filipino. I mean, how does that? And then I started to read a book. And then the book was like, oh, no, you don't realize how much of a racist you are because you don't have to believe you're racist to be a racist. Did you know the definition of a racist has actually changed? You don't have to be a card-carrying member of the KKK to be a racist. You don't have to have a Nazi swastika on your shoulder to be a racist. You don't. Because what has happened in our culture is we are changing the, not the name, but the meaning. But it's been going on for a long time. When I say marriage, some of you, there's an image pops in your mind. For me, the image is a man and a woman. Do you know that's not what pops into everybody's mind and culture today? Because marriage, the meaning has changed. The word has not, but the meaning has. And so yet you and I can be having a conversation with somebody, and yet they have a totally different definition. And it, and it happens. It's a subtle trick of what Satan's been trying to do. He's been trying to twist words ever since Genesis, where he came to Eve and said, the Lord doesn't know that in the day that you eat the fruit, you not surely die. And he just began to slowly twist God's words, ever so slightly. So here we see it too. Their names began to change. And why? Because they wanted to control. And so they wanted to say and change things. 
It makes some things sound less offensive, some things harder. And so we're in a culture now that is changing definitions. You and I are in a place today where if we say relationship or uh, man or woman, the definition has changed. And so Daniel faced the same thing. But then what puzzles me about this whole passage, and thank you for bearing with me, I just needed to set this up. I know it's taken a little bit longer. Notice if you would, verse number five. And the king appointed to the, for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them. So at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. So the king has a special cafeteria where he says, this is all my delicacies, and these that are at their special university there in Babylon, they get to have whatever they want. It's the most expensive, the best buffet, the most exquisite food, and all of a sudden, this is where Daniel finally has a problem. You can take him out of his land, didn't have a problem. You can change his name, Daniel does not have a problem. But you offer him food, and he has a problem. I don't know about you, but food just like, makes everything better. If you got food, we're friends, all right? It's just like, I, there's something about food, right? I, I eat just about any kind of food. I enjoy food. Uh, I'm, I'm working on Indian food. I just haven't arrived there. If you, if you love Indian food, I'm, I'm work, that's the only one I'm working on. I can eat sushi. I can anything else. I mean, there's, I've had didinaguan. If you're Filipino, that's basically pork blood. It's cooked. It's, it's a little bit different. An acquired taste, they say, refined taste. So, I mean, I'll try it. I'm not saying I like it, but I will try it. I've tried balut. You say, what's balut? Go get some. You'll enjoy it. What an experience. It's great. And so I will try things, but here Daniel all of a sudden says, nope, this is where I'm drawing the line. And I don't know about you, but all of a sudden now I'm kind of like, really, Daniel? Like at the buffet. Like at the Babylon buffet, that's where you say, oh, no, sorry, guys. I got a purpose in my heart. We're, We're not going to the Babylon buffet. We're just not doing that. And I was so puzzled by this because I was thinking, Daniel, there's so much bigger issues to raise but now you're going to make your stand right here like is this a protest where you're going to starve yourself but notice what Daniel does verse 8 but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself if you have a copy of God's word and a highlighter and a pen would you underline the word defile that's a religious word it has to do with a sacred ceremony the word defile and once again Daniel doesn't see things the way we see things. Daniel saw through spiritual lenses. And we need to have spiritual lenses to see the things that God is trying to teach because this is powerful. In verse number two, the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar stormed the temple and he took the holy things and he brought them to his pagan temple, which is going to get his great-great-grandson Uh, which is going to really end his rule and reign because he's going to mock God and drink out of those and he's going to blaspheme God with those articles, with those things. And that'll be the end of Nebuchadnezzar's line. So those things are going to come back to bite him. But in that verse, he takes the vessels from God, the holy things, the sacred things. And here we see in verse number eight, Daniel says, I won't defile myself. He's using ceremonial language. Those golden vessels weren't the only vessels that left Jerusalem that day. Daniel saw himself not as a victim, 
but as a vessel for God, a pure, clean vessel that God could use. And he knew that you can try to change my name, I know who I am. You can take me from the land, I can still live for God. Because after all, his forebearers, they lived in Egypt for 400 years. After all, Abraham, the one that founded his entire family, he wandered in the wilderness looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So he knew I can serve God anywhere just like you and I can serve God anywhere we are. You can serve God in a coffee shop, on an airplane, at your job, in your home, walking down the street, on the bus. You can always serve God. You can be away for God. But Daniel said, I draw the line at food because that's where you're going to contaminate my integrity. We see, first of all, it was all about their loyalty, their identity. But mark this down. He said, I'm keeping my integrity. He said, no, no, that's where I draw the line. And isn't that funny? Because that's where Christians often say, nobody's going to notice. I can give up my integrity. I, it doesn't matter my integrity. I, it doesn't matter if I cheat on the time clock. It doesn't matter if I steal a little bit. It doesn't matter if I don't tell the truth to my spouse. It doesn't really matter if I lie to my parents. It doesn't really matter if I lie to my teacher. It doesn't really matter if I lie to myself. We give up integrity all the time. But Daniel said, no, that's where I draw the line. And Daniel, it would have been easy because we live in a day and age where victim culture is everywhere. Like you get to be a victim. Like you can use anything for victimhood. I thought it was hilarious, okay, uh, when I watched part of the interview, because I couldn't watch the whole thing, between Oprah and Meghan Merkel. I'm not here to bash either of them. But hear me. Two people that talked about how they are victims, some of the most wealthy people are trying to tell you and I how they're victims. Just so you know, when Princess Diana died, she left a fund for her two sons, in that fund was $25 million each. I don't know if you got family that left you $25 million, but we need to be friends. Let's talk. I want to borrow a little bit. All right? I don't know any victim that gets left $25 million. I don't know any victim. You say, well, you don't know, Pastor, their whole story. No, you're right. I don't. So I can't judge too hard. But isn't it amazing that even they can portray themselves as a victim, even though they're some of the most wealthy, influential people in the world? All I'm trying to do is say, if they can do it and get away with it, so can you and I. It's just that easy to say, I'm the victim here. Oh, I'm the victim. I got a confession. All right? You're going you're gonna to lose respect. You're going to lose respect. I got my son Fortnite, okay, two weeks ago. I got him into Fortnite. Now, I want to be a good parent, so I want to know. I know what you're thinking. I want to know what my children are into. So I told my son, teach me how to play Fortnite. All right, this Saturday, Jane was working. This is yesterday. This is confession time. It's good. It's good therapy for the soul. And uh, uh, I was supposed to do a wedding, and uh, Andrew was there. And I was like, okay, Jane's going to be back. I got plenty of time. I'm kind of watching my son, learning Fortnite and everything, because I want to make sure he's not chatting with people he shouldn't be. And I lost track of time. And Jane lost track of time. And all of a sudden, I was, I played the victim card. I said, if you would have been here on time, 
I wouldn't have been late. And I was officiating the wedding. How embarrassing is that? The person officiating the wedding is late. Like, how sad is that? Don't ask me to do your wedding, okay? That's the only lesson you need to get out of it. Don't ask me to do your wedding, all right? But I was late, and then I get to the venue, and I didn't know where it was at, so I'm hiking around this mountain because it's up in the Santa Cruz Mountain. I'm just wandering around, and this nice little lady just came out of nowhere just hiking. She's like, I'll show you. It's 20 minutes this way. I was like, oh, great. This is bad. This is all bad, you know? We're trudging. I'm wearing a suit, sweating and everything. I found the venue. They said yes. They're married. Hopefully the marriage sticks. Uh, just praying for it and everything. Uh, I, sometimes I would rather do a funeral than a marriage, a wedding these days. Because when you bury them, they stay that way, all right? So that's the only thing. That's, that's, that's the only thing I've noticed, all right? So just, just being real, okay? But I played the victim. I told my wife, and she, you could talk to her afterward. I was like, if you would have been here on time, I wouldn't have been late. She was like, and she talked to Austin after, and she's not laughing. She's like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're in trouble. And she talked to Austin. She was like, what was dad doing? Oh, he was playing Fortnite, and he was wasting time. I haven't played video games in years, y'all, years. But the one time I do, it gets me in trouble. And I wanted to play the victim card. Because I said, it's your fault. If you would have been on here on time, I wouldn't have been playing video games. And I would have made it to the wedding. And then later I had to apologize and, and make restitution and all that. And uh, uh, I don't know as a parent or as a married person you can fully make full restitution, but we try, okay? And it's easy to play the victim is what I'm saying. But Daniel refused to be a victim even though he was kidnapped from his home country. Even though his name was changed he still accepted full responsibility, which is something the Christian community once again needs to embrace. We accept full responsibility. You say, Pastor, you don't know how hard my life is. You don't know how difficult. You don't know how I've been betrayed. You don't know how I've been abused. You don't know how I've been mistreated. You're right, I don't. And I know what you might say. How can a good God let bad things happen to good people? And to that I say this. There was actually only one good person, and he volunteered for bad things to happen to him. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none good, there are none righteous, only Jesus. And he allowed bad things to happen to him. So before you and I become victims, because that's what I'm watching in the culture, and I'm watching it sweep into the church where we just, we're just victims. Oh, I can't believe the pastor said that. I can't believe the life group did that. I can't believe they didn't sing my favorite song. Oh, and I can't believe they didn't have the temperature here. I can't believe they planned that activity. I can't believe they didn't do the activity like that. And we just get this victim mentality. And you say, no, it'll stop at the doors of the church. It's not, though. I've watched this last year as good, godly people have fell prey to victim mentality. And Daniel is the poster child for a victim, but he doesn't play the victim. He says, I'm a vessel for God. And he says, I will not defile myself. He said on that moment, and this is why we love Daniel. And this is why we're going to finish out this chapter. Daniel is going to have influence to the next four kings of Babylon. He's going to outlast four different kings kings and Daniel's going to have influence because you only have influence if you have integrity the moment you give up integrity you gave up your influence right now there are senators and there are congressmen that we're finding stuff about and we're like oh man we thought they were a good one. Oh man I can't believe that because once somebody makes an integrity mistake you say that's it because integrity is everything 
I mean, if I were to bake you some brownies and bring them over to your house and say, hey, let's enjoy some delicious brownies together. And just before you take a bite of those warm, delicious, gooey brownies, I say, you know, I visited my horse earlier today, and I, my horse made a little, a little, a little droppings, and I grabbed some of it, and I just took a little bit and threw it in the brownies, stirred it up. I'm sure the oven baked it all out. I'm sure it's just fine, so go ahead, take your bite. I know some of you are crazy. You're like, okay, <laughs> you know, some of you are. But by and large, 99.9% of you are like, that's disgusting. Why would you do that? You and I wouldn't willingly eat anything that's been compromised with integrity, but yet we don't purpose in our heart to not compromise our integrity. You see, not only did he say, I'm not a victim, I'm a vessel, I want you to also see, he also said, I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat anything that's going to hurt me. Notice in the text, he goes on and he lays out before Ashpenaz, he comes to him and says, hey, I am hungry, but I want to eat something else. You and I have desires. You and I are hungry for things. You and I want the job. We want the relationship. We want to see our uh, careers flourish. We want to see our families flourish. You and I want these things, and these aren't bad things to want, but make sure you're hungry for what won't hurt you because I see people consuming things that aren't good for them. I've made a joke to my kids. At one time, I got into a bottle of children's uh, uh, Tylenol when I was a little kid because I liked the grape flavor. I swallowed an entire bottle of children's Tylenol, and I hid behind the couch. My parents found the empty bottle and purple all over my lips. I was about three, four years old. They rushed me to Kaiser Santa Teresa. My uh, uh, dad first spanked me, though. I, I, I find that interesting, that he spanked me before we left Morgan Hill to teach me a lesson, and then ran me to Santa Teresa Hospital. We get there. They made me take charcoal, and then they pump my stomach, and I just that memory stays in my mind that I was hungry for something that could end my life. You see, culture today is trying to satisfy a desire. They're trying to satisfy a hunger, but they're satisfying with things that hurt them. And we're seeing it all across the landscape. And the Christian church is starting to, because we're following these waves of culture, we're starting to actually kind of enable it. And that's what's kind of scary. The Christian community is starting to embrace some things that the, goal, the, the Bible is, is totally opposed. And well-meaning Christians are just saying, well, God loves everybody and he'll forgive you. You'll be fine. Just live however. God just wants you happy. After all, he just wants you happy. And then it's a little bit of a lie mixed in with a little bit of a truth. And then we bite on it. And all of a sudden, we give up what God had called us to be. You see, in this passage, Daniel, he so wisely goes to Ashpenaz and he tells him, he goes in verse number 10, the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed you food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are of age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He said, verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days and let, the, let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit, so deal with your servants. I love this. Daniel knew he had a little bit of favor in Ashpenaz, but instead of taking advantage of it, he didn't want to jeopardize that person. He didn't want to jeopardize their head, so he said, test me. This message, you want to put a title to it, is there's a test at the table. 
There's a test at the table. You see, that's where it came down to. Their appetites, their desires, compromising their integrity, letting their, their desires run with it. And so here, they knew they had favor, and you may have favor with a boss or favor with a neighbor. Instead of taking advantage of that, thinking, hey, how can I still be an influence? How can I still witness this person? Because chapter 2, Ashpenaz is going to come back to Daniel and say, Daniel, we need your help. And Daniel's going to save Ashpenaz's life in chapter number 2 and all the other astrologers and all the other wise men in chapter 2. But I get ahead of myself. Where did Daniel build that uh, Influence because he didn't compromise his integrity. He said, you can test me for 10 days. Daniel said, I am hungry, but I'm not hungry for things that are going to hurt me. And then I love this. Daniel said, test me so that you can trust me. Daniel said, test me so you can trust me. And then he gained trust. You know, any of you surf, any surfers, no surfers? I don't blame you. There's a surfer. We do have a surfer. Awesome. Oh, man, we got a surfer. People that travel, say, for a long time said uh, America had no big waves. You say, like, Australia, South Africa, Hawaii. We, we just don't have any of the big waves. You say, what's a big wave? A big wave is over 25, uh, 25 feet, 25 feet to 60 feet. You know, that, that's just massive, okay? So you're, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, surfing something, a wave that's as high as this roof right here. That's what you're talking about. This roof is probably 40 to 50 feet. But imagine a wave even bigger than that and surfing that. So for the longest time, nobody thought there was any big waves in North America. They said there's no big waves. And then in 1976, a 17-year-old kid who was going to high school in Half Moon Bay would stare out his window at every from about November to about beginning of March, these massive waves off of, I think it's uh, Pillars Point. And he would just sit there and he just saw these waves. One day, he gets a surfboard and as a 17-year-old kid jumps into this frigid water that we have up here in the middle of winter, he paddles out and he's the first person that documented to surf mavericks he surfed a 25 foot wave as a 17 year old kid imagine a wave two stories tall he surfed it and all of a sudden the media and surf magazines and photographers discovered the mavericks that we have here they used to have a surf competition all the way up until uh 2019 they canceled it because they've had so many people die trying to surf the mavericks and they thought there was no big waves you know i think culture often thinks that there's no people with integrity anymore I think I meet people that think, oh, there's no more Christians that truly uh, practice what they preach, that what they are on Sunday is what they are on Monday and what they are on Tuesday. I think there's good Christian girls that are looking for a good Christian guy, and they're saying there's no good Christian guys. And then there's good Christian guys that are thinking there's no good Christian girls. And I think there's people thinking, man, there's no good Christian employees anymore, and there's no more good Christian bosses anymore. I would pray that we would say, you know what, I can be like Daniel. I can purpose in my heart. I won't defile myself. Because Daniel, he got the doctrine of sanctification long before the Apostle Paul ever preached about it in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Daniel understood that he was a, a vessel for God. And he said, I will be different. And though nobody else thinks they still exist, they still exist. You and I make the decision to change the culture, to be the wave that changes things. But too often we don't. And let me close by saying this. If, if you've 
taken anything from this study of these short verses and the little time that we've had, I hope you take this away. And this comes from someone who helps out on our worship team often. She'll often say this quote, and it's stuck in my mind. When it's time to perform, there's no longer time to prepare. You see, what happens is, in your, in your job, in your family, and in life, you're going to be caught up in situations where you didn't get to prepare your heart in advance, and if you didn't, you will make the wrong decision. Somewhere in Daniel's past, he purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile himself. He did not make that decision while he was there in Babylon. That decision had been made a long time ago. He had made that decision before. And you and I have to make the same decision. That we say, you know what? I'm going to be a different type of person. Don't wait for the difficult circumstances to come into your life. You have to say right now, no, I'm going to be different. I'm going to make a different choice. I'm going to be the way that goes against culture. I'm going to be the way that turns things. You see, daring to be a Daniel in these last days is what we need. We need people that say in this day and age where if I speak up, if I say anything, I'm going to get criticized. But yet you still, in love, you still speak up. You still say, you know what? This is what God's word says. I'm not trying to offend. I'm not trying to hurt. And maybe I need to give a trigger warning. I'm not trying to, be, uh, tr- not trying to give off microaggressions here. I'm just trying to let you know that this is the truth And I know we live in a culture that everything's a hidden landmine and you're going to offend somebody. But yet we still, as the children of God, still need to look at truth and say, I'm going to be a Daniel. And I purpose in my heart. And Daniel influenced his friends and they all stood together. So you may be the one to influence somebody else in your sphere of influence. Somebody else in your job, in your neighborhood. Where you say, you know what, we can live for righteousness. And so Daniel, because he started right, it ends right. And so today, I ask you the question, have you been preparing? Because there's going to be a moment where it's going to be time to perform. It's going to be the moment, and your integrity is going to be tested. And will you cave and just say, yeah, let's just go with the wave of culture? Or will you be the one to say, you know what, I'm going to stand. I know it's hard. I know it's unpopular. But no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. I'm, I'm not okay that... And some of you have children in public school. When the teacher starts teaching your child something that goes against the Bible, and you say, you know what, I just don't want to make a stink about it. I don't want to be that parent. It, it's probably time you be that parent. You say, man, I got this friend, and man, oh, man, he's always saying this stuff and texting me this stuff, and I don't want it. It's time you say, hey, that's, that's, not, that's not the type of influence I want. He said, well, I'm dating this person, and they, they, they constantly pull me in the wrong direction, and they, they don't even really encourage church or things of God. Then maybe it's time to push pause. He said, well, I work at a, at, a, at a job where they're constantly pushing me to compromise my morals, compromise my values, and, and constantly trying to get me to do things I know I shouldn't do. Then maybe it's something where you pray, God, lead me to a better job. Because I have to make decisions to protect myself. Because I know if I, if I allow myself into those wrong situations, I will make the wrong decisions. So it's time as a church, we say, when it's time to perform, it's too late to prepare. And so the church for too long has not been preparing. As a matter of fact, we've just been content to hear a nice little message that just kind of tickles our ears. And that's good because I was right there. You talked to Pastor Missal two weeks ago. I was like, we need to do a parenting series. And I was like, what am I thinking? 
Like, parenting series are great. I'm not here to bash parenting series. But I was like, you know what? There's too much happening in culture right now. And I'm watching leaders that I looked up to, that I read their books, and I listen to their statements. And all of a sudden, I see that they're compromising on areas I thought we would never compromise on. They're being led by waves that are deceptive and destructive. And Daniel, he starts out practical. He prepares the heart. And everybody today is trying to end major issues, end hunger, end the disparity in wage gap, end racism, end murder, end crime. All good things to say we need to end it. There's only one way the Bible says we end these things. is when we start with the heart. And culture today is doing everything but deal with the heart. They want to deal with the fruit and not the root. But as children of God, we deal with the heart. And isn't that what verse 8 says? But Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. What if we just made that decision? That we said, I'm not a victim, I'm a vessel for God, so I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to defile myself by what I say. I'm not going to defile myself by what I listen to. I'm not going to defile myself by what I watch. I'm not going to defile myself by where I allow myself to go. Because I'm a vessel, not a victim. I'm not just carried by some wave, just kind of like, oh, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I woke up with him. I don't know how I woke up with her. I don't know how I got drunk. I don't know how I just got to the wrong place and now I'm in jail. I just don't know how any of this happened. I don't know how I ended up with all this money from that bank. I have no idea. It just wound up in my car. That ski mask not mine, man. That's somebody else. That's the Uber driver's. We love to play the victim. But what if we stopped and said, you know what? I'm going to prepare my heart to serve God. I'm going to invite the worship team on the platform. With heads bowed and eyes closed, can we stand as we prepare to close? It's a different kind of message. It's one where we say, I've heard the story of Daniel. I know the story of Daniel. But chapter one is a setup for everything else that happens. Because if we don't have the heart right, then you won't be able to receive the truth that's happening. Because Daniel's gonna bring up harder and harder truths. Chapter one is the easiest chapter to get to. He starts with food, but everything else escalates even more. And you're gonna see his friends have to take a stand. And his friends take a stand in chapter number three that could cost their lives. And then Daniel, later in chapter six, he has to take a stand that will cost his life. Food didn't cost his life, but they started there. You and I, if you are waiting for when things get difficult to prepare, it's too late. If you say, hey, I'm going to wait till my kids are 16 and 17, and that's where I'll talk to them about life and how it's important to have God at the center of it, no, it's too late by then. You start as early and as often and as soon as you can. You say, oh, I got time to serve God. I'm just 17, I'm just 18, I'm just 23, I'm just 30. I'm just, I got all kinds of time to live for God. No, 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 we start now. And then that's when God says, okay, I can test them. And once I test them, I can trust them. I didn't get to this. The best part of the story is the fact that they took a 10-day test. But then that word 10 pops up again in the same chapter. The Bible says that God blessed those four young men and made them 10 times smarter, 10 times wiser, 
10 times the wisdom. For every day that they were tested, God blessed them. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen, but I love the fact that God rewarded their faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but I know that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. That's the gospel truth. So as you seek God, He is a rewarder. You may see it here or you may see it there, but you will see it as you are faithful to God. As you say, Lord, I am preparing my heart, my life. I want to be ready because I'm a vessel. And I'm not going to defile it with anything else. I'm not going to let anything into my life. And if there is, then we come to God and we confess it. And we forsake it. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's pray. Grace Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it convicts us. We thank you that your word is not something we need to throw out the door because culture seems more enlightened because we think culture's got better answers. Your word is more relevant. It's more needed. It's more important now than ever before. And in your word has everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. So help us to read your word. Help us to heed this word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. If you'd like to spend some time and pray at the altar, we're going to sing one invitational song. Or if you'd like to make an altar out of your seat right there, seek the Lord right there in your seat, you may do so. Let's sing one last song. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.